0: Well, thank you for inviting us and for having us. Thank you for letting us be a part of your lives. And we thank you for being a part of ours. Praise God. Uh, I'm going to be speaking this afternoon from Mark chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, smartphones, blah, 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 tablets. Well, we want our Bibles in those things if you're using them. So I'll just refer to the Bible. You can you can turn there, Mark 11. The topic of this passage and also therefore of my message is the house of prayer. I'm taking this text to speak about being a house of prayer. And becoming more of a house of prayer. Something the Lord is speaking to our work and I'm coming right out of that. This loving confrontation of the Lord to us and when I say loving I mean that it's not a negative confrontation. Good to see you, bro. I recognize you, man, from the conference, right? Is it Dominic? Domingo? Domingo? I'm close. For me, that's actually a bullseye. For me. (laughs) 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 What? (laughs) Don't go... You can't go by the things I say for... You got to go by what he says, but... um. It's still, for me, I, I don't walk away discouraged and embarrassed. I walk away feeling like a million bucks that I, got, I was that close. I mean, seriously, I call my kids the wrong names. Not, not all the time, just some of the time. <clears throat> so, was I discussing anything significant before that tangent? Yeah, I know the house of prayer. Uh, yes, the Lord is lovingly confronting us, very gently, Uh, looking around, seeing if he sees the flow of the Spirit that accounts for actual fruit. And so I want to speak to you out of this loving exchange that the Lord is having with us, believing it has to do also with you, not because it's happening to us, but because it's biblical and it's timely and it's the kind of word you can almost never go wrong with. But still, I believe the Lord is issuing call for you to continue to be, but also become more of a house of prayer. A house of prayer is a community that prays. They're bent in prayer. The house part is just as important in a sense as the prayer part. Sometimes we think of the house of prayer as a place that we go to pray. It's not. Great if you have that space. Frankie was just talking about that. And I'm about to knock down what he said, but no, no, there's no, I mean, we, when I pray, I pray in a space. I don't, you know, go into this ethereal realm where there's nothing. I'm in my office, in my house, you know, we space is, we, we, space is good, but that's not the house. We're the house. And so the stronger the community and the integrity of our hearts to God and one another, the greater force we are in prayer. We don't want to bypass the house part and just get to the prayer part. We want to be a house, a family, a covenant community that's formed. And out of that healthy you know, journey toward the Lord in relationships that carries more authority in prayer. Jesus said that, in fact, he said, you know, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Stop the prayer meeting. We, we don't need to be hyperactive. Just got to pray more, pray more, pray more, pray more, pray more. It's like well, we have to tend to the issues of the heart and relationships and not just make sure the negative is absent, but that the positive is present, that there is love, that there is a depth of life that comes because we care about being rightly related to God and to one another. And out of that, you have a people like that in a city praying. Well, they're going to pray with greater insight and greater authority. And so that's what I'm talking about tonight right there. Okay. We need more of God in our lives. We need more of his presence as anointing that empowers us to perform the works of God on the earth. The presence of God is anointing. Isaiah 61, Luke four, et cetera, et cetera. First, John, the anointing is the empowering presence of the spirit. It's when he's soaking us and rubbing us like oil and we're empowered to proclaim the good news. In the power of the Holy Spirit, the authority of God. That's the anointing. We need more of that anointing. That's a good amen place. Then I heard a subtle amen from over here. So one nothing this side. Good job. One to zero, zero. This is what you call cutthroat when you got three. Anyway, that's why it wasn't racquetball. I don't know why we called it cutthroat. Sounded cool. Let's play cutthroat. Yeah. There's three playing racquetball. Forgive me, I'm easily distracted and I want to stay focused. Um, the, the, the presence of God as abiding in the house is glory. And we want more of His glory as well. We want more anointing. I want more of the Spirit in my life. I want more of the Spirit of God in our lives as anointing and as glory. I want His, his tangible, oily, empowering presence. And I want also just that beautiful presence of God in our midst that's just there to walk with us in the garden to know one another better and just enjoy communion with him as glory. I just believe we need more of God in our lives as anointing and glory and being and becoming a house of prayer is a key that unlocks those elements of his presence. It's very, very important that we pray. But we must pray with the spirit of prayer. We must pray with whole hearts that are attuned to God. You know, we're not just going through a religious exercise that's pulling the pinata strings as if prayer is just like a formula. No, prayer is just an organic connection with God. In fact, let me before we read the text, let me give you four points here really quickly of what prayer really is. They all begin with the letter D. I'm a preacher. We do that alliteration. It helps us to remember. Prayer is digging, prayer is delighting, prayer is depending, and prayer is doing. Just really quickly, sermon number one. Prayer is digging. We pray because we want to dig deeper into God to know him. Now listen, I'm talking tonight about praying with authority, with the presence of God, to see these viruses cast out, demons cast out, power open doors in our community. I'm getting to that. That's my whole point. But prayer is not just utilitarian. Prayer is our relational connection to God to dig in and just know him better because he's good and he's worth knowing. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know you speaking to his father. He was praying this. And we're benefiting from this prayer in John 17. This is verse three. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So prayer is digging into God. That's our first priority, just to get a hold of God and know him. Amen. I don't know. That's a tie. So prayer is digging. I want to to understand the virtues of God better. I want to know him better personally. I want to hear those little whispers. I want to know him better in that experiential way. And by the way, when I pray to know God better, it's not just experiential. It's also truth-based. Jesus taught us to worship in spirit and in truth. If it's just experiential, we will 10 times out of 10 go off the rails somewhere. And yet the written truth, the revelation of God's word is something to be prayed about, prayed through and explored to know God better. So that's just integrated. That's why Jesus taught it very simply to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's that's what I want. I want that experiential one-to-one spirit-to-spirit companionship. But it's truth-based, constantly meditating upon the truths of the gospel to know Jesus better. And to know God better. Digging, prayer is digging into the treasures of God himself. There's no one more knowable, more adorable. I don't mean that in just the cute sense, but capable and worthy of being adored than God. He's like the best kept secret in the universe. And he's displayed his wonder everywhere. That's why the psalmist call on the different aspects of nature to celebrate the different Attributes of God, the mountains of, of righteousness and the great deeps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Prayer is digging, but prayer is delighting. Prayer is that relational connection to God where our spirits enjoy him. I just don't feel like we should talk about doing prayer to see more success in the gospel if we don't really know God well enough to delight in him. Well, then we don't really know what we're, what we're about if God is not utterly delightful to our hearts. <clears throat> when I was young and new in the Lord, I remember people getting up for kind of a canned worship service and saying, oh, just think we're going to be doing this forever one day. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> we're going to sit in a service like this and grit our teeth through the music service Forever? There's something I'm missing. And there was something I was missing. My my experience of God was kind of shallow at that time. I was a brand new believer. I mean, there were some things I delighted in easily, but to have that kind of developed relationship enough to actually taste the goodness of the rivers of his delights wasn't something I was very developed in that took time just like any other relationship and so in prayer and this is of course very related to digging in isn't because digging is getting to know better but when we dig enough we delight you know psalm 36 the children of men take their refuge in the shadow of your wings they drink deeply of the river of your delights and in your light they see they see light I mean that. That's our inheritance. That's our experience that God is good and we could taste of his goodness. Come on, the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who doesn't want to know a person like that? Who doesn't want to to taste the sweet fruits of God's attributes? Prayer is delight. People who pray and are interested in gospel work, they they, should. What's their motive? But God is delightful, and as a result, their hearts are conditioned. They love people. They want to see God glorified, and people enjoy him. Thirdly, the third D is, do you remember what the third D was? I do. I'm not, I'm not, ooh, I'm not depending on you. I'm depending on the Lord, and I did remember. I did. So it's two one one now. You guys, they took the lead. Okay, we're not going to be able to keep that going. (laughs) Prayer is dependence. We need God for everything, especially to do his work. And the theme of tonight is not just building a house of prayer, but building God's house because prayer serves that end. How could we possibly build God's house without God's help? We need God for everything. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Prayer is an expression of dependence. The beatitude that goes with that, Matthew 5, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus expounds on what it means to be poor in spirit, he teaches on prayer in Matthew chapter 7. I believe that corresponds. Uh, The poor in spirit are people who ask and seek and knock, like little children who don't have a bank account. They don't have anything. They're just constantly depending on God. Now, I didn't want to start with this point, even though we do utterly depend on God, I wanted to. Yeah, you know, I wanted to stay away from something that's merely functional and say, look, God is good. He's worth knowing and we delight in him. But we also need him and ought to pray to express that need and therefore possess our inheritances in the kingdom. We pray because we depend on God, even when we don't feel like we need him. We do. Even when he's blessed us abundantly in areas where we can't perceive our need naturally. We still have those needs. And prayer, therefore, is that healthy awareness and expression. Abba, Father, I need you. Help, 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 help. Right? The psalmist said, I I rise before the dawning of the morning and I cry for help. I hope in your word. People who know God know how poor they are in the good sense. And therefore, they're rich because they're constantly calling out, crying out, and chattering with a very wealthy and generous father. And finally, D, this is a, a, more of an awkward D word in the way it fits in rhythmically with what I'm trying to express, and yet it's the whole point of the rest of my message. Prayer is doing. Here, here's what I mean by that. If, if we're going to do God's works, we have to pray about it first. Whatever we're doing out here in the real like world, nature, city, neighborhood It starts in the interior of prayer. And there's times we'll be conscious of that. We will literally pray prophetically for certain events, pray them through and then go out and do it. Other times we won't be as prophetically conscious, but somewhere earlier than the moment when we shared the gospel or we we prayed through that straying child and Whatever the breakthrough is, whatever the miracle, whether it's a healing, whether it's a conversion, whether it's the building of this or the establishing of that, even if we're not conscious of when that was accomplished in prayer, somewhere, somebody took care of that earlier in prayer. And that's very important. That's, in, that's what this passage is about in Mark 11. Praying through the works of God that God calls us to. Again, sometimes we're prophetically aware. I've had moments where I, my whole prayer time before the service panned out during the service. It was one of the first lessons I learned at Brownsville. When I, was, I mean, before I went to a revival service, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have the chronology right. Before I went to a revival service, I went to a prayer meeting before the revival service. And I saw this prayer meeting in I mean, I was a part of it, and at the time, you know, they were able to let people in, so I kind of walked in as a pastor from uh, Wisconsin at the time. I was an associate pastor, and I just walked into the prayer meeting, and Lila Terhune was was letting people in, and we just were praying. And You know, these prophetic intercessors can do some odd things sometimes. That's okay, as long as it's from the Lord, you know. (laughs) And so I, you know, I just, well, one thing I do remember, the first thing Lila said was when she started to pray, she said, Lord, our only agenda is you. And I thought, that's so cool. Lesson learned. Number two, Lord, this, let's move on. That's awesome. Anyway, I forget exactly how the prayers went at first, but it was basically worship. And then someone got this prophetic word about, about Oklahoma the state of Oklahoma, we're gonna pray for the state of Oklahoma. And you know, the prophetic intercessors, they start doing the wagon train thing around the people who represented Oklahoma, because I guess they had wagons in in Oklahoma, so they're all doing their thing, (laughs) praying. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I mean, you know, I have so much respect for what's going on in this place, the move of God, so there's, you know, I can handle that acting out prophetic parables of wagons, (laughs) then someone gets this burden. It's not just Oklahoma. It's every state. We're supposed to pray for every state in the union for revival. And off we went. We prayed for revival in every state. And, you know, I'm sure we rushed through some. I wasn't leading the prayer meeting. I'm just going along. Yes, Lord, you know, whatever. And we prayed through it all. And then we prayed down and the hour was over. And off we went into the revival service. And so during worship, Steve Hill gets up in the revival service, stops everything. You know, it's always intense when the main, one of the main leaders gets up and stops everything because clearly the Lord's about to interrupt. And he says, I've never done this before in the revival, which happened a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done this before in the revival, but we have to pray for revival in every single state. And I want a representative from every state to come up here. And we're going to pray for you. And of course, he wasn't in the prayer meeting and got no report of the prayer meeting. It was purely by revelation. But I knew, okay, now that got my attention. All right. We just prayed that. And now it's panning out among the people who are here from the different states. There's a correspondence. That's the importance of praying and interceding according to the will of God ahead of time. Now, again, it's that that was partly so that I could see the one to one correspondence But sometimes we're praying stuff even in the spirit. We have no idea. We may be praying about some person in South Africa or something. You know, the the point is not we always have to visualize it in prayer first. The point is that somewhere prayer is paving the way for doing the works of God in the earth somewhere. So it's very important that we establish a house of prayer or those avenues On which the spirit flows like a river come on now they're not going to flow with the same kind of clarity and fluidity if we uh, then then if we weren't praying i hope i said that right but you get the idea you guys with me the fourth d is prayer is a doing we go and we pray through with authority if there's mountains in the way of this work you want to remove them and they're removed in prayer prayer that discerns the will of god and, and, and discerns in his will the exact nature of those mountains that are in the way. Because when Zerubbabel was along with others, of course, and Joshua and the leaders of Israel returned from exile, when they're rebuilding the temple, there, were, there was resistance from the nations and the prophets. You know, They got discouraged and they stopped building the house of God. And the prophets Haggai and Zechariah rose up and prophesied and Zechariah said in terms of building that temple, there's a mountain standing in Zerubbabel's way, but he will speak to it and will be removed. He'll say or there will be excuse not just he, but it says they will shout grace, grace to it and the mountain is moved for what purpose for the building of God's house. All the building is done in prayer and then we go out and we do the things that we just prayed avenues and, and creating inertia to move into those things by the Spirit. Everything starts in prayer. Now, I don't want to just come off and say that. I want to talk about God, which I did earlier, digging and delighting and depending. And once our hearts, it's like our priority is just, Lord, we want to know you. Man, there's this strategic praying that has to undergird everything that happens. Again, whether we're prophetically conscious of it or not. There's times we are, there's times we're not. We're not always looking for that. We don't want to write the rules. We just want to know him. Come on. I'm losing track, but the middle guys, you're going to have to step it up a little bit. Mark 11, verses, well, we'll just start in verse 1 and we'll we'll carry on. So as they approached Jerusalem, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat, untied and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say the Lord is need of it and immediately he will send it back here. So Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and he's he is conscious of the fact that he is fulfilling prophecy. So he's made arrangements to sit on a colt. He's made arrangements to have a, a, an unused donkey to ride in to Jerusalem, to make a statement that we would call messianic. He's, he's, he's more than subtly, but not quite explicitly, claiming to be the Messiah here. And he's coming, according to Zechariah 9.9, 9, in gentleness and meekness, because that's the, that's the nature of the incoming of the kingdom at this point. It's a surprising revelation of the Messiah. He's not going to take over. With, with physical violence, he's not going to gather a militia and liberate the nation from the Romans. He is rather interested in liberating the nation from its sins, which does not require him to ride a war horse, but a horse, a, a, a cult of a, of a donkey that indicates he's laying his life down. He's a servant. He's the sacrifice, right? Okay, so that's what's happening here. And so here comes this king. They went away in verse 4. They found the colt. It was just as Jesus said. So in verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on it. He sat on it. Many spread their coats in the road. Others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they're recognizing either that he is the king or that he's a prophet announcing the king. I'm sure there were different ideas, but they surely saw him as a significant figure. And they're now expecting the kingdom to come through this Davidic figure. So you understand, right, he's coming into Jerusalem among all this fanfare. And of course, in the middle of Jerusalem is the temple. In verse 11, now here you go. So here we start, right? Mark eleven eleven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. Now he behaves in a way that is unexpected and everything that follows, but he's still fulfilling prophecy. So that was like, that's what Jesus did. He would fulfill prophecy in unexpected ways. God expected it, we didn't. And this is Malachi 3, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord's messenger, he will come and he'll cleanse it. He'll cleanse it with with, with, uh, with he'll cleanse it with soap and with refiner's fire. And that's the passage being fulfilled here. So he's coming to cleanse, and he's he is fulfilling that prophecy of the day of the Lord, but it's it's the day of the Lord, but it's not the last day of the Lord. It's a mini version of it. It's the way prophecy goes. It's one of the reasons why we have a hard time understanding prophecy is because it's, it's all fulfilled in the end, but it gets these little fulfillments along the way, and we really struggle with that. There's a time coming, and now is. There's the already and the not yet, and there's always this tension. So even when things are fulfilled, they may not be fully fulfilled because he's going to come again to his temple. He's going to come again to Jerusalem. They kind of thought it would all happen at once, but he was he was doing the 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 interior work first. It was all meekness and sacrifice and allowing himself to be abused so he could save his abusers. But then one day, as Hebrews tells us, he's not coming in reference to forgiving sin. He's going to come to judge. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. He comes into the temple. He's fulfilling this prophecy. So he's consciously doing this. Zechariah and Malachi. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany. Now that was not what they expected. He comes in. in) Wow, who's this? The Gospels tell us this is the prophet Jesus. And they're talking about him. He's raised the dead. He's the one. There's been all this attention on him. And now he he tells his disciples to get the colt. And he comes in, fulfilling Zechariah 9. And here he is. And. Come on, let's go to bed, guys. And he goes away to where he was sleeping. He just came in and checked everything out. And left. Mark's the only one who gives us this detail. It's very, very, very important. For Mark's point, to say Jesus came in, he examined, and he left. Just not a big confidence builder to me. As I'm following the narrative, that the x-ray eyes just come in. He's got no pressure to fulfill expectations. Everybody's looking at him like, "Eh, yeah, yeah, and he's probably holding part of his robe, looking, looking, looking. Right on. Okay, you're ahead. What if he's doing that to us tonight? I mean us, okay? Sometimes the position of the preacher, you know, you kind of think you're kind of Jesus. I'm not. I mean, I know you know that, but we (laughs) kind of view it that way. It's like, no, it's a we here. What are the X-ray eyes seeing in us in terms of fruit-bearing prayer? It's like, well, you know, i busy. Well, okay, no one's telling you you don't pray enough. I don't know what he's going to say. He's the judge. I've got my own heart that I have to worry about. But, but he's the king. He's the one whose opinion matters. Now, I, he's not going to come at this kind of severity, I, I wouldn't think, to like our work. But what does he see? What's, what's What are his examining eyes examining in us? Is he seeing the fruit for which he created the tree? So it's, it's, it's worth thinking about. And in fact, if we really want a house of prayer, dare we ask, Lord, come. And hi. <laughs> How are you? Now, we, I was... I was trying to work this out with you earlier. I was waving at you. But it's okay. Delayed response sometimes. That's just the way the Lord operates. Yeah, I understand. No, I know. God bless you, partner. Have you guys seen my grandkids, by the way? This, I'm sure that has got something to do with that. It's got something to do with being a papa now. I hope. Unless he's got a problem with my preaching. And one day he'll be able to articulate it just let me live in my world. Um, Yeah, well, Jesus is, is examining. He's examining, and he's going to base his response on his examination. So dare we pray, Lord, come and examine. Come and examine. Lord, we're a little bit Afraid of that? Now, oh, we shouldn't be afraid of the Lord. I know, but still, I'm just telling you I'm a little bit afraid of the Lord just examining, honestly, right. you know. Okay, maybe my, my, my afraidness should be more of a reverence. So maybe the Lord will point that out. In any case, you know, I'm in a season of life where God's getting to things over the past couple of years that he hasn't gotten to. In my own heart, in my own life, Uh, ever. It's like this quite a season of pressing and pressing and pressing the grape. And then finally it's over, but it's not. And more pressing and more pressing. And then finally it's over. And then another week comes. And he's like, well, I got to see what kind of juice is in that grape when I squeeze it hard enough. So in some ways, it feels to me like my heart is extra tender to this sort of thing. It's just one of those seasons. Like, okay, well, I mean, you only live once, Lord, just do what you need to do. Examine my heart and examine our ministry work and just judge it by your standards, not the standards of the outside worldly church world. That even I'm tempted to compare myself with. Oh, I don't know. I was like, well, but how does the Lord see me? Then it's, it shuts my mouth in comparisons. And that's part of the point of this. This relates to the passage because Jesus is concerned that there's an interior reality that corresponds to the face we're putting on our ministry and our church. And we've become experts at putting something out that looks like it's alive. We're experts at it. We could do it instantly. Opening day. And it's massive. It's awesome. Opening day. He's like, wow! And Jesus is like, my eyes examine on a different level. Right? It's the characteristic of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 7. He, he, does not, he does not judge by what his eyes see, meaning the natural. He does not judge by what his ears hear, just what you, you and I are saying, just what we show up and show. He's like, no, I see on the interior. And in our context, I see... If there's a deep integrity that's pulsating in prayer. There's a house there that's healthy. That out of that desire for God and his work is spending time in prayer. Because there's no other way. Because even some of the churches in Revelation, it's like, look, you you do good works. You have good doctrine. But this I have against you. So we may be wholesome, but is there such a connection to God that we're actually spending our time articulating it to him so that something will happen that he wants rather than just coasting. Anyway, in verse 11, he comes into the fanfare and it's anticlimactic. He simply looks around at everything. And perhaps that's where we are in this moving toward the Acts 13 identity that God has spoken over you all. Perhaps we're in, in examination mode, waiting on the Lord to tell us what we should do next. So having looked around at everything, at the last part of verse 11, right? Jesus left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And that's it. That's the event of the first day. dun da, dun, 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 dun 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 climax almost. And then he looks around quietly, very ominous, turns around and takes the road home to Bethany. It's already dusky, maybe almost dark, and then they get home to sleep. First day. On the next day, in verse 12, everybody with me? Almost, guys. (laughs) Come on, middle section. On the next day, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not yet the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So yes, he cursed the fig tree because it didn't have fruit. And, and you know, we talked about this last night. It's always a question, what's, what's the deal with the tree, Jesus? It says it wasn't, it wasn't the season, and you created the season. So how can you blame the tree for not having fruit? So the answer, I always give a twofold answer. Number one, he's the king. If he wants fruit, he gets fruit, whether it's the season or not. If he's hungry and he perceives a reason to inspect a tree and find fruit on it, then that's we're not, we're not gonna, I'm not going to give him a nature lesson. <laughs> Lord of all nature. Secondly, some of the fig trees bore little bits of fruit before the harvest in the fall. This is the spring. And some of the fig trees would... would what's the word, would bud, the small version of the fruit that would come more mature later. But there would be a very early form of fruit early, like ahead of time. And how did that tree indicate that it was budding early forms of the fruit? Because it was full of leaves. So the fact that it was not the season for figs is an important point for people who understand this process. Because they're like, oh, we don't expect figs on the trees unless it's leaving. It has leaves. Therefore, it's going to have the little fruits. So it's an extra blessing for Jesus, who has a big day ahead of him. And the small version of the fruit is not as pleasant to taste as the mature figs, but it's still edible and nutritious. So Jesus sees a a tree and leaf, and because it's not the season for figs, he says, ah, The tree is giving me breakfast after all. I can see the leaves are indicating. The leaves are saying, We got fruit. He goes up and he says, Wait, but you don't. Don't operate that way. Don't advertise that you're alive if you ain't got fruit. And he says, Never again. This is not the way we operate. We don't go for looks, we go for fruit. And you know how you get the fruit? You connect with God deeply and pray. You do the work in secret for the public manifestation of fruit. We have become, and I say we, meaning the larger church in the Western world, we've become masters at creating false advertising. We can look alive, we can look amazing, spiritual, because we can manipulate, not in social media, even before social media, we just, we find a way to look like there's something really happening. Or it's mixed, it's promotional, mixed with some good gifting and whatever else. And Jesus is like, that's not, never the way I've designed it. Sometimes I see works, people are bragging about how amazing it is already, and I'm like, how could it possibly be that amazing already? What's wrong? It's not possible. I know in the natural, things can be a lot slower, but seriously, do you know how long it takes to form a healthy family? Do you know the amazing investment and the time that it takes, and it's like, oh, we instantly got this gigantic healthy family. Look, their kids are representing, and everything else. And it's like, how did you possibly? There's no way. That's not the way God creates us. He calls us to something that's a, that's a long-term investment. I mean, especially. I mean, we're all all cities are like this, but especially one. You know, or, or the, the city of Orlando has the ability to make the impression. I don't just mean spiritually. I mean, it's like it's one of those media entertainment cities that's like really good at making a statement on the outside. Irrig- I almost said irregardless. Regardless of what's on the inside. Because that's all we're concerned about is the impact. And Jesus says, he says, when I examine, I don't care about the external impact. I care about the life and the fruit. You won't fake it with me. Well, look at that. Only the Lord could do this. Actually, the Lord didn't do that. You did. You can't get fruit that fast. I know of of a church in a completely different state. First thing they started, boom, it's huge and exciting. You know, everybody came on over. And then the next week they're like, man, we got community like we've never seen. I'm like, in one week you got that kind of community? Do you know how many crises real community has to go through before we even know if they love one another? Do you know how much time that takes? Let alone long-term discipleship of all these people in these neighborhoods that are broken, 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 broken. Have you ever read the epistles and what Paul had to deal with with new Christians? You can't can that. It's something that's dug out in the deeps of God in prayer. We can make the trees look like they got a lot of leaves. But only the one who comes in and examines with x-ray eyes that are holy can tell whether or not there's real fruit. We call the leaves fruit sometimes. It's not. Fruit is fruit. It's new believers and it's character. It's the development of people who aren't working on just the way they come across to others. They're, they're, They're working on who they are in God so that their very lives just bear fruit. It's, it's seed. It's organic. So this cursing of the fig tree is a parable that is parallel to the, the parable of Jesus coming into the temple in a moment. <clears throat> that rhymes, by the way. It's a parallel parable. Notice, by the way, in verse 14 that Jesus curses the fig tree. Matthew tells us it is withered immediately, and of course he's accurate, but Mark doesn't mention it yet. Mark mentions that Jesus goes into the temple. So it's curse the fig tree, then go to the temple. We find out about the result later. So Matthew just truncates it, he puts it together in a condensed form for his purposes, because the, the speed. With which this tree completely withered up even though it's seen actually in 24 hours still that's miraculous so he says immediately I mean it wasn't like months later it's like it's completely gone all the leaves are gone everything's shriveled so for Matthew's purposes it was immediate well it was immediate with Mark also but we don't know it yet because of the way Jesus is playing out these parables so here comes parable number two making the same point Verse 15, okay, after the cursing, verse 15, then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach And say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. So there's there's three things happening here that the Messiah as king is doing in his temple. Number one, he's cleansing the temple. He's removing the business elements. You're using God's house for your business. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with buying sacrifices. If you live 100 miles away, you, can, you want to wait till you get there to buy a sacrifice. And then you need to exchange your currency if you're a Jew from another nation or city that uses different coinage and whatever else. As a general principle, fine. But these guys are taking advantage of God's feast and the pilgrims in order to make a profit. And they're using God's house as a hiding place to fulfill their selfish desires. So Jesus comes in and he says, we're getting all this out of here. And we kind of have to take that in our own hearts. Lord, get all that out of us. We don't want to use God's house so we can profit in some way. And usually if we're not dedicated to the Lord in prayer, there's some form of business. Even if it's not as obvious as it may be in Leafy Orlando, or every, everywhere else. I mean, we're, all these cities are the same, just you guys are a little more so. Just, I mean, you, this city, not you. It's just, there can be a superficial impact that we get good at, and we sometimes even subtly agree with it, right? Because outwardly, it looks healthy. I don't know, I just have to tell the story real quick. Many years ago, we went to Disney World as a family. In August. I don't understand how that happened. I think my mom arranged it, got tickets, something. <laughs> Poor mom. I think I think that was the case. Anyway, Disney World in August. My twenty-four year old son was five, so this was almost twenty years ago. Disney World in August. You you know, we're from Florida, I understand the heat. You August and the humidity and the crowds. Unbelievable. Little Evan's walking around. Were you holding his hand at this point? He's crying. Gina asks, why are you crying? Are we poor now? Do we not have a house anymore? He thought we were homeless. That's how bad it was in Disney World. That's how hot it was. All of our time standing in line or moving from one line to another. There was no fun. He forgot, he's five, he forgot why we went. And he thought we were homeless. That's our vacation. Our five year old thought we lost our home and all of our possessions. Come on now, that's the interior. The outside looks real pretty, but you get on the inside and it's like, man, no fruit in here, man. This is not vacation. We paid a lot of money to, you know, to make our kid think we're homeless. That's how much fun we were having, right? The external, we build up sometimes just for profit, but inside, when it comes to actual contact with human life, it's misery. The house of God should not be that way, and Jesus is going to cleanse everything that creates that facade, not just a facade that it looks like it's alive when it's not, but uses that facade to its narcissistic advantage, because they made a ton of money on us, and we just felt homeless. (laughs) Right? Jesus was judging that. So first, he cleanses the temple. Second, he controls the temple. There's people trying to come in and bring in more merchandise, and he stops them. Now, that must have been a sight. Here's this one young man, and I know in John chapter 2, he had a cord, he had whips. Some scholars believe it's the same event. Most conservative scholars believe they're separate events. So how did he control the temple? How's he stopping? Because it says he would not let them walk through. Hey, hey, you're not in here. Out, 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 out. How's he doing that? How's Jesus, Yeshua? Does Does he have a weapon? Are the you know, you hire these big giant disciples? Come on, Baba Do you guys know Baba Tunde? Like so, there, every once in a while I wish like my I was walking with Baba Tunde to help to, to address this person I had to address. It's, you know, big old ex-NFL player. He's one of the one of the brothers in Chicago. Did Jesus have guys like that? It's just like you know, th- the size of three men? There's no indication of that. Where did Jesus get this authority? Well, you know where he got it from, but you're, spoiler alert, I have to keep moving. The third thing Jesus did was de- rededicate the temple to prayer. First, he cleansed it. Second, he controlled it. And third, he rededicated it with no connection to the temple police, with no big muscle with him. No weaponry. He didn't gather you know, a bunch of bad guys with you know, weapons or something. He just did it. He acted like the king. He cleansed it, he controlled it, and then he dedicated it. I mean, is there not one person that's just going to walk up to him and say, you have no right to do this and put him in a headlock and escort him off the, the, the temple precinct? There's no one there to do that. Jesus has no authority, naturally speaking, whatsoever. None. Where did he get the freedom and the open door to just walk into the temple and take complete control? It's completely random. It has no connection with any natural ability to do that. You know where it came from. You know that. Because I already explained. Jesus came in, he looked around, and he went home, and they slept, and they got up, and they did the fig tree, and came in for this. Right? So you all know where I'm going with this. What do you think he was doing while the disciples were sleeping? He's up at night moving the mountain. Because that's just what he teaches on in a minute. Because then they go home and they come back again and they're like, in the morning, the second morning, there's a fig tree all withered up. Like, how do you do that? Jesus says, I'll tell you how I do it. Have faith in God. Tell the mountain to move, and it moves. And there he's giving us a hint of what he did that first night. He stayed up and prayed until, unless he already knew exactly what God wanted, he saw the mountain and he moved it. So when he physically came on the temple precinct, he was free as a bird to take complete control of the entire temple. With no political, no militaristic leverage whatsoever. None. Just a fairly thin Looking olive-skinned Judean. I say fairly thin because of that first fast, and plus I kind of see him looking a little bit like me, but maybe that's just my own ego. <laughs> You're <real> like, <laughs> thin? <laughs> okay. All right, forget all that, forget all that. Middle section, come on, support me here. <laughs> Here's your chance. He's not physically intimidating, that's the point, and that I can apply to myself. He's, he's, there's, there's zero natural leverage that he has to do this, but we know what he did. He taught his disciples to see the secret. He says this is a house of prayer, and then he teaches on extraordinary prayer and moving mountains. He's like, that's that's what the house is supposed to be doing. So it doesn't matter what's set up against you out there. If you win the battle in prayer ahead of time, you go out and just do you do the things you won the right to do in prayer. That's really really important. Now, last night, I, I shared some of this with the leaders, but I took a, a different tack. I, I brought out different points that the house of prayer is not just about praying strategically. There has to be a whole quality of life inside the hearts of the disciples. So I'm trusting those folks to be able to disseminate that information that, that the Lord did give through me, that they discerned that he did give. That's what I'm not talking about Tonight, just because I, you know, it's in two different messages. But there's a there's a lower there's a there's a bottom of the iceberg dimension to this that we don't just go pray strategically, and harbor bitterness in our hearts and be resistant to transformation when there's there's you know fear or anger or lust that we're, we're giving place to r- rather than yielding to the Lord. It's like you, you can't just have a house of prayer by praying prophetically. Plenty of people pray p- prophetically. Wow. There's an alliteration. Plenty of people pray prophetically. That's not the house of prayer. There has to be a depth to who we are. Plus, with that depth, we can see what we need to pray about more easily. The, um, yeah. Yeah, you get the point. Okay. So when evening came in verse 19, they would go out of the city. The crowd was astound, astonished at his teaching. Verse 19, when the evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, and being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus now addresses how that happened. How was he able to speak to a fig tree and command it to wither? How was he able to cleanse the temple with no interruption? Well, he explains right here. He doesn't say this outright. To me, it's implied in the narrative. This is what I was doing while you slept. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. And look, that's a commanding prayer. He calls it, verse 24, therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be given you. So that's a form of prayer, this commanding of the mountain. By the way, it's not any old mountain that's just we perceive in the natural it's this mountain whatever that mountain looked like in the spirit to jesus the night before that's what he pointed at and said be removed and thrown out of my way that's the extraordinary ministry of the of the son of god who is a great high priest who prayed through things so he could go then walk in the avenues created by his prayers it's awesome So therefore, he says, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them. This high level of faith, when we know God, we're intimate. We're people who just want his will. We're seeking him in prayer. Things start to get shown to us in that purity and that integrity. And in prayer, we see it. And then we come to that point, once all that's known, we can actually point at things, metaphorically speaking, and command them out of the way. Prayer is the undergirding power to the work of God in our city. It's that simple. I've basically run around that same block now 20 times. And then the quality of prayer is affected by our relationships, as I've already said, I already talked about this. Verse 25: when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you for your transgressions. So there's, and, and there's much more to it, that depth of the, the health of the heart. It's not willy-nilly selfish, natural perception moving mountains. Just making a faith teaching out of this. There's elements to that that's true, but it goes much deeper. This This is a house of people who care about what God wants, who line up their lives deeply with him and pray the will of God. And then they can walk in the power of God in their city and in their neighborhoods. So it's prayer, but it's prayer with a depth of quality. Praise God. Well, let's stand together and begin to pray and just ask the Lord to help us. And cleanse what he needs to cleanse. Take lordship and control over what he needs to control. And rededicate us as a house of prayer. And I'm not pretending that my prayer will do that tonight. I don't know. I'm just saying that these are the points we have to consider, right? We'll, We'll just spend a a little while in prayer, it's, it's uh, about that time to just close in prayer. So let's just wait on the Lord a bit. We'll close in prayer. We belong. We're in the league of those who love the Lord and who are in covenant with him. He's not coming to a work like this and judging us. He's evaluating to edify us. But there might be things we still have to get right with him to repent of, to deepen our, our, uh, th- th- our integrity, embrace something deeper than what we have before. So let's, let's let him help us take account and get our lives in sync with him that way. Father, we're asking you now, oh, your tender mercies. We're so grateful, Lord, just we pray for just a beautiful distribution of your tender mercies over your people right now. Just like that little guy, that little child was just expressing himself and being sweet and innocent. Uh, innocence. Help us to be like these children to you, Father. To be that kind of house of prayer that we just know you and we love you and we're children and we're innocent and we believe. We, we Restore that in us, God. Restore childlike innocence, childlike qualities in us for the sake of prayer, God. That our prayers might not merely be an activity, however spiritual that is, but that they might come from the depths of innocent hearts that just want to build your house and be your people and see your gospel advance in glory in this city, God. Father, we pray establish such a house in this city among all those who call upon your name. I believe God needs people like this to establish, to establish a house of prayer in this city, to have great impact, to have great authority in prayer, in the spirit. And we have to be willing to do it in the secret place. Father, give us a deeper delight in you in the secret place. Deal with us, God. Deal with us. Help us. Deal with our hearts. Deal with our habits. Help us, oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Bend us in prayer, Father. Bend us in prayer, God. You guys are awesome. Look at you just, you're you're just, your voices are up. That's wonderful. Just continue to speak to God out of your hearts as you wish in harmony with what you know the Spirit's doing, in harmony with what you hear in agreement with others. We're going to do this as one. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, would you reestablish the house of prayer for all nations? Would you reestablish that? Not as merely a building, not as simply activity but out of the depths of the undivided heart, Lord, would you establish a house of prayer? Out of the depths of a covenant community, would you establish prayer, Lord? Would you dispense of your mercies right now to convict us of sins so we can come to you and be forgiven and get our lives right? Lord, wherever we're harboring, holding on, to unforgiveness, anger, bitterness, on any level, resentment. Would you shine your light, Lord? Would you dispense further of these mercies? Not only to shine the light on these things, but to give us the strength to hand them over to you and to walk away without them. Would you establish the house of prayer in this way? In the integrity of your spirit in our spirits, God? Would you do a work in every... And woman, boy, and girl, in not just in this room, but in all that's represented here, in all in this city and region. Among those who call on your name, would you do a deep work in our hearts and homes to establish this Mark 11 kind of house of prayer. Not our kind, God, your kind. Attending to your gospel imperatives. We pray. We pray. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.